Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Inside Asia podcast from the Center for Asian Democracy at the University of Louisville. This is Dave Buckley, CAD's director, and Paul Weber, Endowed Chair of Politics, Science, and Religion here at UofL. I'm joined today, as always on the interviewer side, by Dr. Ashani Dasgupta, CAD's postdoctoral fellow. Ashani, how's it going this Friday afternoon? It's going great. Thank you. Okay. Uh, thanks to the leadership of our colleague, Tori Dahl, CAD's podcast channel has gotten some freshening up. All of our episodes are accessible on our website through UofL, as well as through Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Uh, just search Center for Asian Democracy. Subscribe, review, and stay up to date on future episodes. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Dr. Karis Templeman, research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University and part of the project on Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific. Uh, Templeman is a political scientist with research interests in Taiwan politics, democratization, elections and election management, party system development, uh, dominant party systems, and politics and security in Pacific Asia, among other topics. Uh, Karis is also author slash editor of Dynamics of Democracy in Taiwan and the forthcoming Electoral Malpractice in Asia, uh, which is just a spectacular title. Um, he's also a regular contributor to outlets like Foreign Affairs, the Journal of Democracy, um, and other scholarly and publicly accessible venues. Um, Karis has had a range of appointments um, in Taiwan studies, Asian studies, um, and, uh, and in uh, public-facing um, research institutions. Outside of Stanford, uh, he's a member of the U.S.-Taiwan Next Generation Working Group um, and a 2019 National Asia Research Program Fellow at the National Bureau of Asia Research. Um, we are thrilled to have Cars with us today uh, because in one of Asia's most robust democracies, Taiwan's voters went to the poll last week in local or uh, midterm elections. For more background on this election, go to our website and check out the pre-election briefing that CAD's own Tory Dahl published on our website last week. Um, in a way, Taiwan's elections are a bright spot in a troubled region uh, with generally high turnout, acceptance of results by losers, which we can't take for granted, uh, and electoral institutions operating in the way that they were intended. Um, but at the same time, questions about polarization in the country and the always present challenge of the cross-strait relationship um, arose in, uh, in Taiwan as usual. I'm curious, Ashani, what stood out to you about our conversation uh, with Dr. Tuppelman? So I was really thrilled by our conversation on gender and politics in Taiwan. Uh, it seems like Taiwan has one of the best gender representations in the, re in the region and definitely something to observe and learn from for policymakers and like nations on their own. Yeah, so uh, without any further ado, we'll get right into our conversation here. Enjoy our conversation with Dr. Karis Templeman um, on the recent local elections in Taiwan. All right, Karis, uh, thanks again so much for taking the time to join us today to talk about this election. We're excited to go through some questions with you. Oh, wonderful. Thanks for having me on, and I look forward to the conversation. Okay, uh, maybe you can get us started with a quick overview of what exactly was at stake in these elections. In the international press, they're frequently uh, referred to as midterm elections, but that might actually be a little bit misleading, uh, given that term's meaning here in the U.S., especially for most of our listeners here. Um, who and what was actually on the ballot uh, this week in Taiwan, and, uh, and how does that relate to this idea of it being a midterm election? Yeah, so uh, Taiwan uh, has two major election days uh, that fall on a four-year cycle. Uh, this is all of the local elections. So everything from the mayor of Taipei, which is a special municipality, 
all the way down to uh, a local village chief uh, in a rural area in Taiwan. And uh, so there's about um, four or five different levels uh, and altogether nine different kinds of uh, offices up on the ballot. Um, and so this uh, altogether, I think there were about 11,000 different seats up for grabs. Uh, so it's a big election by Taiwan standards. Um, it decides everybody who holds elected office below the central government level. Um, the reason it's sometimes called a midterm uh, is that uh, the other major election day happens um, in uh, January 2024, or January 2020, uh, which is the presidential and legislative elections. Uh, and uh, Taiwan used to hold all of these elections at different times. Uh, and over the last decade, they've all been combined into two major elections. And so the only time for voters in between a, a four-year cycle of, of a presidential regime uh, the only time they have to weigh in on that election is these local elections. And so they have uh, midterm election is a little bit misleading uh, in the sense that it's not uh, national level or central government level offices on the ballot, but uh, it does have something in common with the U.S. midterm elections in that uh, if voters are unhappy with the incumbent government, they can't vote that government out. They can punish people running at the local level, though, as a consequence. And so um we don't have a long enough time period to know kind of what the general pattern is, but the last two election cycles, the incumbent government's party has been punished uh, in uh, the local elections. Yeah, I mean, is there any evidence that since those uh, the the nature of these elections has changed that they've become more nationalized? I mean, have, are these local races now becoming more caught up in sort of national level uh, contention? Yeah, so um, my prior going into this election was that they have become more nationalized um, for a couple, there's a couple just uh, kind of structural reasons. Uh, one is that uh, in the past, you had a different electorate turning out for each of the local elections because they were held on different days. And so you get high turnout for high profile elections, low turnout for low profile elections. Here, it's the same people in the ballot box casting votes for all of those different races. Uh, and so that alone uh, changes the composition of, of who's voting in these, these elections. Um, in addition, there are some uh, economies of scale in campaigning for elections. Um, if you've got 11,000 offices on the ballot, um, you know, two or three high profile party leaders uh, can be out there campaigning for all of those people uh, and they suck up most of the attention. And so the vast majority of voters don't really have a clear idea of who uh, their local ward chief is or who's um, what the the major competition is in their city council race but they may know uh, you know the DPP candidate and the KMT candidate for mayor uh, and depending on um, which candidate they like better they then vote the party line all the way down so um, there's some evidence from 2014 and 2018 that that has uh, that that's occurred, that that's what is actually taking place now. 2022 has been a little bit different. And uh, so I'm I'm having to revisit some of my previous assumptions. I don't actually think this was as nationalized as the previous two uh, sets of local elections. All right. Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody loves a good post-election narrative, right? Um, and, uh, and you're kind of getting at that right now a little bit. In most of the international reporting, I would say, that, that's been out there, if one of those narratives stood out, uh, it was probably that this was a, a sort of stinging defeat to the incumbent DPP. Uh, President Tsai Ing-wen resigned as chair of her own party um, in light of the results. Um, is it right to say that this was some sort of a sweeping victory for the primary opposition party, for the KMT? Or, uh, or do you, are you thinking about this in, uh, in a different way? 
Um, well, the headline races, the KMT did very well in. So they won Taipei. Uh, they hadn't controlled Taipei for eight years. Um, that was a, I don't think you can spin that any other way than a, a KMT victory. They won the hope, most hope, high profile race in these elections. Uh, they won in Taoyuan, which is the other special municipality that had an open seat. Um, that seat had been held by the DPP for the last eight years as well. And so there's definitely uh, at the, the highest profile race level, um, uh, the KMT performed at the upper range, I think, of expectations. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I don't want to discount how well they did. Um, but if you drill down into the numbers a little bit uh, at the council races and at lower levels, the KMT actually showed some weakness. Uh, the KMT lost city council seats and county council seats overall, um, and the DPP actually gained some. And so it suggests a more complicated narrative than just uh, voters didn't like Tai Ing-wen, they didn't like the DPP, and therefore uh, a huge share of them swung back towards the KMT camp. Um, I think we've got a, a, a much uh, a much messier uh, a much messier kind of uh, outcome here than uh, the last couple of election cycles. Um, so I have a question uh, about disinformation because one thing that really stands out in recent elections in Asia, and we've been focusing a lot of it, uh, a lot on it in uh, the in CAD, is the mm -hmm. role of online disinformation or inauthentic online actors as a campaign tool and even at times uh, a source of violence. Mm -hmm. um, at CAD, we've had these recent discussions about, uh, you know, disinformation in politics, especially focused on Philippines and, in, and India. And of course, mainland China is certainly active in this, this space. Do those dynamics play out at all in uh, Taiwan? And if not, why do you think online polarization hasn't quite had its impact there? Yeah, um, so I'm going to give a complicated answer to that question. It's a great question. It's something that uh, Taiwan watchers have been worried about for a long time as well. Um, Taiwan is on the front lines of uh, the Chinese Communist Party's efforts to control the narrative and shape how people talk about Taiwan. Um, they've targeted Taiwan's uh, local elections for decades uh, and have tried to promote candidates who uh, are pro-unification and uh, undermine candidates who are pro-independence and just generally shape the, the nature of public opinion in a direction to their liking. Um, that said, uh, I, I like to use the analogy of um, like being exposed to a virus when you're very young, yeah, it kind of inoculates you. And in mm -hmm. Taiwan, I think the Taiwanese electorate, because they've been exposed to this for so long, uh, the uh, the kind of mudslinging and negative charges uh, that candidates throw against each other, um, th there's strong partisanship in Taiwan, and partisans tend to tune out uh, the negative information about their own candidates. Uh, and so it's um, it's actually, I think, been the, the disinformation efforts of the CCP have been less effective than you might imagine overall in Taiwan. There's specific instances, of course, where the CCP is... Uh, and the other thing, to, the other caveat here is it's really hard to study this effectively and to, to identify, especially uh, actors who are clearly engaged in disinformation and to trace those actors back to uh, some kind of uh, agent on the mainland, for instance. Um, uh, and But overall, my sense is that uh, disinformation actually 
has gotten a lot of attention the last five years or so. Um, it hasn't actually affected electoral outcomes as much as you might expect. Um, uh, another part of this is uh, turnout, for instance, in 2020, when there was a lot of worry about disinformation, uh, turnout was very high. That was a very uh, emotional and a very uh, kind of salient campaign uh, for both camps. Um, and as a result, disinformation is the kind of thing that can affect the outcome if it's low turnout, if it's a couple points here or there, if you can disillusion one camp supporters. Um, but when you've got both sides just fully invested in their candidate and uh, just hyped up to vote, the kind of disinformation spread around, it, it doesn't really affect things at the margins in the same way. So um, to this point, at least, I, I don't see disinformation as posing a um, an existential threat to Taiwan's democracy. It's a problem, but it's one that's manageable uh, that I think Taiwan has done a pretty good job of of addressing as well as kind of developing antibodies against. Yeah, I mean, you're using this like almost organic metaphor. Right? Yeah, it almost right. seems like what was that there was a kind of, I mean, because one question is like in combating these things, is it, is there sort of a, a state-led effort that needs to happen? Is it sort of a tech industry-led effort that needs to happen? Right. But you're almost describing a more organic process of learning over time that has meant that those kind of top-down responses maybe aren't necessary. I mean, does that sound about right to you? Yeah, and I think uh, there's also uh, the Taiwanese government likes to talk a lot about how effective their disinformation or anti-disinformation efforts have been. Um, and I think they deserve some credit for recognizing the problem and, and trying to address it. But, you know, Taiwanese voters are, they've, they've dealt with China for as long as they've been alive. It's always been an existential threat right across the strait. It's always the critical issue in uh, at least central government level elections. Um, and uh, they're generally, you know, they have enough information. In fact, even taxi drivers are really well informed about politics already. And so um, it's a hard target, I think, for a disinformation campaign to really make an impact on. And so I, I, I tend to lean towards the more organic kind of bottom-up story about Taiwan's defenses. It's, you know, state capacity and the ability to, to limit um, certain kinds of different disinformation campaigns are part of the story, but I don't think they're the whole story. That's great. Um, maybe we could pivot just a little bit uh, here at CID. We like to talk about election rules, right? They're super important in structuring the nature of results. Um, so far, uh, we've been talking about two parties, and Taiwan is usually talked about as a kind of two-party system between the DPT, DPP, sorry, and the KMT. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, as you know, that's not quite the whole story. Can you say a little bit about how other parties fared at different levels of these elections, and sort of how the rules of the game in Taiwan impact the prospects for those parties? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, well, let's start with the electoral rules. So Taiwan has, uh, in these elections, they elect uh, executive officers. So mayors, county executives, township heads, and village heads. Uh, those are all first past the post. So you just win a plurality of the vote. There's one seat. The top vote getter gets that seat. Uh, you know, totally familiar to Americans, right? Um, that sort of electoral rule tends to promote uh, convergence towards two competitive parties. Uh, and so in executive races, not always, but the general tendency is towards two competitive candidates and voters strategically abandon the third and fourth candidates and weigh in on one of the top two. And so that, that pattern, I think, was generally true in Taiwan uh, in these elections as well. Um, 
Taiwan at the council level has a very different electoral system to select their councillors. Uh, and this will probably be unfamiliar to most American, uh, to, to, the, to an American audience. Uh, they use something called single non-transferable vote, uh, which uh, best way to describe this is uh, you've got a multi-member district, so you may have uh, 10 seats up for grabs, uh, and voters are able to choose one of those candidates. So they, they cast a ballot for one, but the top 10 vote getters all get a seat. Um, and so this has uh, a couple unusual consequences for electoral outcomes. One is uh, small parties can actually win if they have, say, 10% of the uh, voters supporting them in the electorate. Um, they can probably win a seat if, as long as they only nominate one candidate and coordinate on that candidate. Um, the, the problem is if you can win three, four, five seats with one party's candidates, uh, then you have uh, both a nomination problem and a coordination problem. So um, you have to decide, you know, if I think we're going to win 40% of the vote, well, in that 10-seat scenario, we probably should nominate four candidates. Um, but in some cases, we may underestimate. We turn out to win 50% of the vote, and then we win uh, fewer seats than our vote share would indicate we should get. Um, or we overestimate our support, and then say we only win 30% of the vote, we spread it too thin, and we win zero seats when we could have won three. And so uh, big parties in this system have a real problem in deciding how many candidates to nominate. Um, and then they've got a second problem in uh, how they distribute their vote across candidates. So imagine, uh, for an American audience, imagine uh, you're in a, a you know pretty blue district, a Democratic district in the U.S. Under this system, say the Democrats could win 60% of the vote there. If you nominate six candidates, and one of those candidates is really popular, so like 50% of the Democrats all vote for that one candidate, uh, they might only win two or three seats when they should win six. Uh, and so you've got to get your voters to distribute their vote evenly across all six candidates in order to maximize your seat share. Um, so this uh, this has been a problem. I mean, this is, system has been in place for 70 years in Taiwan, and it's always been a problem for the big parties to coordinate and to nominate the right number. Um, so uh, I haven't actually drilled down in the numbers, but uh, this shift from the KMT to the DPP may be driven by simple uh, coordination and nomination strategies in, the, in that case, rather than uh, a significant shift in the share of votes going to the two parties. Um, so uh, that's a very long answer to the electoral side of the question. Um, the uh, party system then, um, party system kind of comes out of this electoral system and, it, and its incentives. So you could have multiple parties, you know, three, four, five parties winning a seat in a single district in Taiwan. Um, and uh, in this case, uh, there are several small parties that ran city council candidates, did win some seats. Uh, but generally, and for reasons that aren't entirely clear, uh, small parties just don't do very well at the local level. Uh, and so their share of the overall national vote is one, two percent. Uh, generally. Um, so, you know, there's, I think there may be one or two city councils that has uh, more than, has has uh, more than one council member from uh, a small party. Um, so it's, uh, they're small is I think the right term in this case for these, uh, these third parties. That's really interesting. Um, I, 
So just a, around a week ago, Nepal went uh, to the polls in an election with a complex set of quotas involving mm-hmm. gender, caste, and religion. And Taiwan also has some interesting electoral rules um, related to particular communities as well. So can you tell us a little bit about how uh, rules related to gender and indigenous status uh, basically shape this, these elections? Yeah, so Taiwan has two different kinds of quota systems. Um, the first is, I'll, I'll talk about indigenous uh, quotas first, because um, uh, so Taiwan has an indigenous population that is uh, formally about two and a half percent of the population. So people who hold formal indigenous status uh, and the uh, the institutions of the Taiwan system give indigenous voters some special rights, uh, and they also place them um, not in every race, but in in the council and legislative races. They put them in a separate district with their own elected representatives. Um, so, uh, if we get if we get a bit technical here, they have both uh, the the representatives have to be indigenous. And the voters also have to be indigenous. Uh, and indigenous voters also have no choice. They have to be in that separate electoral role. They can't, unlike, say, New Zealand, they can't decide, oh, I'm going to vote in the regular general electorate this, this election and then switch back over. Um, uh, so that has the consequence of creating this uh, kind of separate electoral uh, tier uh, just for indigenous voters and representatives. Um, most of Taiwan's uh, localities have indigenous representatives then that are guaranteed a seat uh, through this separate tier. Um, and uh, the effect on representation, I've argued in my own research, is mixed. Um, indigenous legislators have actually been in a position sometimes where they hold the balance of power in Taiwan, and they've been able to force through some significant changes to legislation that has actually benefited uh, the indigenous peoples at large. Um, but most of the time they don't hold that balance. And in fact, uh, even worse, they're, they tend to be divided by party, by tribe, by region. Uh, and there's even a divide between what I'll call kind of traditional local politicians who moved up through this tier, who are much more oriented towards patronage, uh, towards serving particular communities, and then elite indigenous activists who often have advanced degrees, who are often um, in universities, who are trying to push a kind of pan-indigenous agenda, and they don't play well together. They really uh, don't see eye to eye on a lot of issues. And so the indigenous um, uh, the indigenous representatives, uh, in in some cases, I think, have have fallen short of the kind of influence that they could have if they all cooperated on a particular agenda. Um, so that's that's the, the indigenous side of the story. Um, Taiwan also has long had uh, gender quotas, uh, and um, so the traditional gender quota has been in these uh, multi-member districts using single non-transferable vote. Um, the latest, I think the most, the highest level now is uh, 25% of the um, multi-member seats have to go to women. Uh, and so that ensures that at least one out of four council members is a woman. Um, the long-term effect of that quota, which has been in place uh, three, four, five decades. I can't remember how how far back it goes, but it's been a, since before democratization. The long term effect of that actually has been to 
to increase the number of women who have long experience in elected office. Uh, and it turns out the second order effects of that have been really quite positive for women's representation. Um, so there are now a lot of women running for executive office, which does not have a gender quota. There's no requirement that you have to nominate a woman for mayor or township head or village ward chief. Uh, but because these women in the quota system have developed their own, uh, the, you know, developed their own kind of personal appeal uh, built on networks uh, that are important to get them elected at the local level. Um, they've actually been quite competitive now in uh, mayor and county executive races. Uh, and so in this most recent election, 10 of the 22 incoming mayors and county executives are women. Um, it's by far the highest in East Asia. Um, and it looks very, very different from even Japan or South Korea in terms of representation. Um, the last uh, point I'll make on this question is Taiwan also has uh, a gender quota in the legislature, um, but the legislature uses a different electoral system. It's, it's got single member districts and then a party list tier. And the party list tier requires half of all party list nominees to be women. Uh, and so uh, Taiwan's uh, the, the share of women in Taiwan's legislature now is uh, just over 40%. Um, but Taiwan also has a female president as well. Um, so the representation of women in politics at the central government level is actually quite good as well. It, it partly attributable to this gender quota system, but I think uh, the, the bigger story here is kind of the long run effects of the local gender quotas. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's just super interesting. And I think about the region in general that Taiwan's in, you know, and we, we see gender-based polarization in South Korea right now, for yeah, example, right. right? It's not, it's not a region that, that's overall known for super high levels of representation. I mean, it, are there lessons that you think like the Taiwanese case holds for the region as a whole, or, I mean, it, this is clearly not new. These quotas go back a fair amount of time in, in the case um what yeah what is there a takeaway for the region as a whole yeah um i think there there's certainly a um a positive argument to be made for gender quotas here um but don't expect them to have an immediate impact i guess is the takeaway i'd have um you know this is something that's taken place over generations uh the there's a couple other parts of the story here that are not specific to the institutions um one is that a lot of the women who've done very well in these uh, most recent elections um, at, at the executive, you know, so mayor and, and county executive level, uh, they come from political families. Uh, and so oftentimes their father or an uncle, you know, or some male figure was the original political patriarch, uh, built up their local network, um, maintained that network, and then they kind of inherited that. And so um, it's, you know, it's not an entirely uh, kind of egalitarian story about. Uh, yeah, now my Philippine side is saying, oh, yeah, yes, okay. I, I, know much, right? I know this story. I know this story. Right. So there's certainly some of that going on in Taiwan. Uh, the other part is that women in Taiwanese business culture uh, and just generally their, their role in the family, this is a, a kind of culturalist argument. Um, they're, they're often the the real entrepreneurs in the family. And so they often have a lot of social and economic capital as well. And so uh, the it's even an economic argument. Uh, Taiwan has, uh, the Taiwan economic miracle was kind of built on small and medium family level firms. Uh, 
Uh, and there, the women had a co-equal role with the men. Often, actually, they were the ones making the fundamental decisions about what they what the firm would do, uh, what it would invest in, who they would work with. Um, and so there's a long tradition of women kind of playing this uh, this executive role just in, in the Taiwanese economy and in uh, kind of family level decisions. And so it's not that big a leap from a Taiwanese cultural perspective to have women then running for local office and, and a, a woman as mayor, for instance. That's that's really interesting because of the gender equity, uh, the general political and economic uh, space has includes women in a in a big way. Uh, so another electoral rule uh, that was on the ballot in Taiwan is age restriction and suffrage and holding office. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about what exactly voters were considering and why did it go down to such a decisive defeat? Yeah. So Taiwan has uh, one of the highest. Uh, age requirements uh, to vote uh, in the world, as far as I'm aware. Uh, it's 20 years old. You have to be 20 uh, to be able to cast a ballot. Um, so uh, that's actually written into the, the Republic of China constitution. Uh, and so uh, in order to lower the voting age, they uh, it requires a constitutional amendment. Um, so uh, the amendment procedure was changed in 2005 to um, require a three quarters vote of the legislature, followed by a call it a referendum or a plebiscite um, that requires at least 50% of all eligible voters to vote yes on the amendment in order for it to pass. So it's a pretty high threshold for a constitutional amendment. Um, and up until this year, that procedure had never been used. Uh, so the legislature had never actually passed a constitutional amendment proposal uh, until this year. Um, that streak was broken in February when all the parties agreed, you know, this is a non-controversial thing. We think uh, we should come into alignment with the rest of the world. We should lower the voting age to 18. Uh, and so it passed the legislature unanimously. Um, so the next stage is go to the voters with this proposal, um, and uh, they the Central Election Commission agreed to hold the uh, referendum on the constitutional amendment the same day as the local election. So in addition to all these local races, voters got a ballot for the constitutional amendment. Um, there was no, as far as I can tell, organized opposition against lowering the voting age, uh, and um, I expected, and I think a lot of people expected this to be pretty uh, non-controversial, non-controversial, and to be a, you know, if anything is going to be approved by 50% of all eligible voters, it's this. Um, but it turns out the uh, the proposal went down to defeat. It got only about 52% of all all votes, uh, and it was so it fell about four million votes short four or five, somewhere in that range, uh, short of what it needed to, to pass the threshold. Uh, so it was a pretty stunning defeat for this amendment. Um, and I, I don't have a good explanation for why. I can speculate a little bit. There's uh, Taiwan has a pretty, um, uh, Taiwan's age profile leans very old. Uh, so it's got a rapidly aging society. There are a lot of old voters, not a lot of young voters. Uh, and there's a kind of inherent conservatism among older voters uh, toward uh, big changes uh, to the constitution or to institutions. And 
from what I've been able to to gather from um, from contacts in Taiwan, there was also a kind of whisper campaign among older voters about, you know, eighteen-year-olds uh, really shouldn't have the right to vote because they're not mature yet. You know, they we don't want to give them this this power. Um, and then related to that, um, this amendment also lowered uh, the age for running for office, or at least it made it possible for an 18-year-old also to stand for office. Right now, that level is 23. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so opponents focused uh, on that as well. It's like, do you really want 18-year-olds representing you in the city council or in the legislature? And um, so I think uh, the lack of a uh, uh, kind of a concern, right, the last part here is uh, neither of the major political parties really went all out to try to convince all their voters to vote yes. Uh, they had bigger concerns, and so they they didn't put a whole lot of political capital into this campaign. Uh, and so part of this was just uh, kind of uncertainty or confusion about what the amendment would do, and in th that sort of uh, referendum, voters voted down. Yeah, no, it's, it's super interesting. Um, you know, I mean, overall, um, Taiwan's institutions are obviously you know, really, really strong when it comes to, to the standards of, of the region. We see backsliding in a lot of parts of, of the region and not, not really in Taiwan. Um, one ind indicator that maybe um, raised uh, my attention and, and I've seen get a little bit of attention in the press is, is turnout in this election was not um, quite what it sometimes is in Taiwanese elections. I don't know if you noted that and if you think that that is sort of um, uh, politically meaningful in, in the long run for sort of voter engagement and satisfaction with democracy in the country, or if there were more kind of one-off explanations for why that might've been the case. Yeah, so turnout, just to put it in comparative context, turnout was about 61%. If I, I haven't got the final number, but in that range, um, the U.S. midterm turnout, I think, is close to 50% if we're doing well. Yeah. <laughs> um, so comparatively speaking, Taiwan's turnout is still pretty high. Um, it's even more impressive generally uh, than the U.S. because Taiwan doesn't have absentee balloting and it doesn't have early voting. So every single voter has to go back to their hometown where they their household is registered and go to one specific polling place to cast their ballot on the specific election day. Um, so there are higher hurdles to voting in Taiwan than there are in most of the United States. Um, so with that background, the turnout is still, it's not uh, fatally low, I think. It's, it's still pretty impressive. But uh, compared to last election, um, so the last local election turnout was in the 65 to 66% range, I believe. Um, so they dropped about five points. Um, and compared to the 2020 presidential and legislative elections, those were close to 75%. So it's a 14, 15 point drop here that we're talking about. Um, that's, again, from an American perspective, not unusual. The presidential election in the US gets a much higher turnout than the midterm elections. Um, so uh, I wouldn't characterize it as a kind of uh, flashing red light for democracy or participation. I think those are still generally pretty healthy in Taiwan. Um, I am a little bit concerned about, um, actually, so there's a, a side note here about COVID restrictions. Um, there were about 65,000 voters who were in quarantine uh, who were not able to exercise their right to vote uh, because uh, the 
um, the health authorities would not let them out of quarantine to vote. And there's no provision in Taiwan electoral law for them to, to bring a, um, a ballot box to a quarantine center. Uh, so there was no extra provisions made for people who were, um, who were isolated. Um, that to me is by far the biggest normative concern here. If you are uh, denying people the right to vote because they got sick uh, or even just because they tested positive, you know, the rest of the world has adapted to COVID. It's been around for three years, right? We've we've come up with ways to deal with this and not restrict the franchise more than is necessary. And so that to me, I think was the most, most disappointing, I guess, uh, part of this from a normative, uh, democratic normative perspective. Uh, so maybe we can look to the future a bit now in light of these local elections. How do these results change your views of the likely outcome of the next presidential race? Have KMT's odds increased? Uh, how much trouble is the DPP in right now? Yeah, so um, I think the the headline result that most observers have taken away is that KMT did really well in these elections. And the implication then is in what, 14 months when we hold the presidential and legislative elections again, um, the KMT actually may be better positioned than expected to uh, to win those elections. Um, I'd caution too much against making that leap um, because the KMT in 2020 really struggled, the KMT in 2016 struggled, and uh, this is a different set of elections with a different kind of set of issues on the ballot. Um, I've argued earlier in this podcast that it probably wasn't as nationalized as the past two elections. And generally, the KMT does better when they're competing just on local issues rather than on cross-strait issues, how to manage the Taiwan-PRC relationship and uh, the Taiwan-US relationship. The KMT has some kind of longstanding weaknesses on those issues that it will have to address in the run-up to 2024. Um, that said, I also think the narrative that the KMT is just doomed and dead, and uh, no, since no voters under forty will support them, they're they're in a, a state of terminal decline. I think this election really um, makes that narrative very hard to sustain. You know, they've been quite competitive in these local races, and. They've got several popular mayors now who could potentially run for president in 2024, and they would be formidable candidates. And so um, I think we're going into an election cycle in Taiwan that is uh, high variance. It's um, We're likely to have at least three uh, competitive candidates on the ballot, uh, KMT candidate, DPP candidate, and probably, we haven't talked about this, but the current mayor of Taipei, Ko Wenja, is... Uh, the head of a small third party that did uh, surprisingly well in these local elections, he is likely to run as well as kind of a, an independent. Uh, and so you could get a three-cornered race here. Um, and we know from past experience in Taiwan, three-cornered races can be unstable uh, and it's hard to predict, you know, even a month out how voters will vote. Um, there's incentives to vote strategically. And so um I I wouldn't rule out any kind of outcome in this coming election. The KMT could could win, the DPP could win with a a, a more pro independence candidate than the current president, um, or uh, even an independent Kowinja could potentially win this race. Uh, and so I've um, I've been 
try to beat the drum in the U.S. that uh, we need to get to know all of these potential candidates better and try to understand their views on U.S.-Taiwan relations and U.S. Uh, and cross-strait relations and um, try to foster a, a, a better dialogue between all of the potential leaders, the next leaders of Taiwan. You just mentioned that you know the, the DPP candidate next time around could be someone who's even more aggressive in the pro-independence uh, positioning than than in the recent past. Um, you know, we sometimes see reporting about Taiwan becoming increasingly polarized between uh, the DPP and the, and the um, KMT. Um, polarization, this idea of deep partisan polarization, obviously raises echoes of other highly contentious national elections in the region recently, in the Philippines, in, uh, in India, and there are other examples too, um, uh, including obviously closer to home for us here in the United States at the national level. Um, I mean, do you think that the way that this term polarization gets used internationally resonates and sort of accurately captures the nature of, of the divide between uh, the two major parties in Taiwan? And do you see that polarization deepening or is the story um, uh, a little more nuanced than that in the, in the Taiwanese context? Yeah, I think uh, 15 or 20 years ago, it captured the dynamics better than it does today. Um, so another way to say this is I think Taiwan has become less polarized, both at the mass level and at the elite level than it was in, say, 2004. Um, so if you look at public opinion on cross-strait relations, on Taiwan identity, um, on you know, what Taiwan's future should be, um, there's actually quite a bit of convergence towards support for the status quo. Um, and there's some divergence about what Taiwan's future should be, but there's a very small segment of the electorate that is pushing for independence immediately. And that number hasn't, hasn't gone up much over the last 10 years. And there's an even smaller percentage that is pushing for unification immediately. Um, so the, the broad middle of the electorate is what I would call a pretty pragmatic, uh, has a pretty pragmatic view towards cross-strait relations. They, you know, if it's gonna cause a war with China, nobody wants a declaration of independence. Uh, if unification leads to them being uh, put under the thumb of the CCP under a one country, two systems model and their Hong Kong 2.0, nobody wants that either. And so it's there's a, a pretty broad pragmatic middle on cross-strait relations. Um, on national identity, um, the large majority of Taiwanese now just identify as Taiwanese, not Chinese. That number continues to rise. And so there is kind of a convergence towards Taiwan as uh, you know, the, containing a separate nation and people from the people across the strait. Um, and so, you know, that has some, some challenging implications for cross-strait relations, and it's certainly not good from Beijing's perspective. Uh, in terms of domestic polarization, uh, I don't think there's, uh, it's, there aren't two, uh, uh, two hostile camps, you know, kind of fighting with each other. There's actually a much broader consensus about who who the Taiwanese are, where they came from, and where they're headed than you might expect given the headlines. Um, what I've been much more worried about over the last decade is elite polarization, where um, the two the, the leaders of the the major political parties um, are just deeply, deeply suspicious of the other party's motives and incentives. And so the DPP will accuse, say, the Ma administration in the the um, early 20, you know, 20-teens of uh, having sold out completely to China. And there were bitter fights over the Ma administration's approach to China policy. Then when the DPP came in, 
there were accusations from KMT leaders that the DPP was um, you know, leading Taiwan to war, that they were being too close to the United States. Uh, and more than just a policy difference, it was actually one of kind of personality and identity. And, you know, so it's a, a much more um, kind of deeply rooted polarization than just over, over policy. Um, there as well, I've actually seen more convergence in recent years. So to give you one striking example, um, Tsai Ing-wen, the current president, actually appeared at the opening of the Jiang Jingguo Memorial Library. Um, Jiang Jingguo was the last dictator of Taiwan. He was a KMT president. Um, the KMT has long portrayed him as kind of the father of Taiwan's democracy. He started the process of liberalization. He was fiercely anti-communist. He, uh, And so they have a very good image of him. Uh, the DPP for a long time viewed him as you know, an authoritarian and somebody who should not be celebrated. Uh, and it was, and in fact, his, his uh, kind of oppression of the opposition was something they had to overcome. Well, Tsai made a pretty bold move in going to his, um, the, the Memorial Library and giving a speech praising his legacy. You know, that was a real step away from this kind of traditional DPP narrative. And so um, even on elite at the elite level, there's, I think, been convergence towards some common symbols that both green and blue camps can get behind. That's great. Um, maybe we can wrap up with just turning to the international level a little bit. This has already played around the edge of some of your comments about Beijing's yeah. reaction and uh, and uh, and also your thoughts on how the U.S. should be positioning itself going into the next uh, presidential cycle there. Um, but uh, maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on that. Um, you know, is this election that should in, an election that should in some way sort of fundamentally change the Biden administration's approach um, to the relationship here? Is there a message that um, that should um, impact the the priors of American policymakers about the nature of the domestic actors and how they're going to uh, navigate the cross-state relationship? Yeah, um, I don't think it should impact it uh, dramatically. Um, I think the Biden administration's approach to Taiwan has been fairly sensible. Um, it's the messaging has gotten a little bit muddled. Um, and I I know a lot of Taiwan watchers are calling for Biden himself or someone high up in the administration to give a you know, kind of a keynote speech laying out U.S.-Taiwan policy and clarifying um, what's changed and what hasn't over the last few years. Um, but uh, in terms of practical approach, I, I think the Biden administration has been pretty sensible. Um, and uh, they, both the KMT and the DPP are quite familiar to policymakers in Washington. Uh, the KMT leader, Eric Ju was just in Washington last but uh, this past year, actually, he took a, a delegation there, um, also came to Stanford, by the way, we had a good meeting with him here. Um, and uh, so it's it's not a, it wouldn't be a big surprise and wouldn't be unfamiliar if we had a KMT leader as the next president. Um, DPP as well, you know, Tsai Ing-wen uh, is in my view, that probably the best DPP president the U.S. will ever get. Uh, we've been fortunate to have her in office during this um, time of rising tensions and concern across the strait. Uh, I think she's been very, very careful and pragmatic in her management of the relationship. Um, and so the bigger question is who succeeds her and will they kind of follow in her footsteps or try to step out in a bold new direction? Um, and I... Uh, in my conversations with people in Taiwan, uh, the DPP folks insist that whoever follows her 
is going to follow in her footsteps. It's it's going to be Taiwan 2.0, at least in terms of foreign policy. So um, uh, I hope that's true. I don't know if I entirely believe that, but um, we'll. So I think the Biden administration would do well to kind of suss out uh, who the leading candidates are in both political camps uh, and um, perhaps have quiet conversations with them about what the fundamental American interests are that are at stake here and um, how we hope to to work with whoever the next leader of Taiwan is. Um, on the PRC side, um, it's clear that they they view even local elections through this cross-strait prism. If the KMT does well, that's a rejection of the DPP, DPP bad, DPP independence. Therefore, anything that uh, anything where the DPP is is not doing well is good for the uh, the PRC. Um, I think uh, so. I guess the the more positive spin on this is the arguments in the U.S. that China has just given up on. Uh, the prospect of peaceful unification and that they're moving towards a military solution to the Taiwan so-called problem. Um, I, I don't think you can sustain that that argument as well with this KMT win in the local races and the possibility of a, the next president being from the KMT. I think it suggests that the that Beijing does have some incentive to be patient still on Taiwan issues and that they have not necessarily given up on the Taiwan voters electing somebody who's more uh, favorable to uh, to cross-strait rapprochement, if not unification. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for uh, for taking the time to be with us. Um, an election that um, you know maybe was a little bit under the radar in the American press, but one that uh, touches on super important issues tied to both the domestic health of democracy and also its international status in the region. Um, in one of the region's uh, you know real shining stars of, of democratic stability. So uh, thanks for for shedding light on the implications domestically and internationally, and and we'll keep an eye on things in the period moving into that next national national election cycle. Great. Thanks again for having me on and giving me the chance to, to talk about my favorite subject of all, Taiwan. <laughs> so, Great. All right. And for everybody listening, um, you know, we'll, we'll be staying uh, engaged in uh, uh, elections across the region and other political dynamics as we get into the new year. Um, so as always, check on our feed through uh, Apple and Spotify podcasts, through our website, uh, through the University of Louisville. Um, and we'll look forward to being in touch as well through social media channels at YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks, everybody. And we'll see you next time.